Sometimes it seems as though we have exhaustedly examined every last story of the Second World War. And then a book comes along that shares a story largely unknown. That is what we examine today because of an extraordinary new book called Ensnared in the Wolf's Lair. Inside the 1944 plot to kill Hitler and the ghost children of his revenge. The story of the plot, the actually multiple plots, to assassinate Adolf Hitler and bring down the Third Reich from within, that story is somewhat well known. But almost completely unknown is the story of Adolf Hitler's reprisal of his seek for revenge in the, in the wake of that uh, of, of those assassination attempts, and in particular the one that very nearly did end his life. And that is the story of this remarkable book. Uh, and it is written by a Wisconsin-based writer named Anne Bossom, who has written extensively on various historical topics, many of them in and around uh, themes of, of social justice, including the march against fear. Uh, this book, like at least a couple of others uh, written by Anne Awesome, uh, is published by National Geographic. Uh, again, it's titled Ensnared in the Wolf's Lair, Inside the 1944 Plot to Kill Hitler and the Ghost Children of His Revenge. Anne Bossom, we welcome you to The Morning Show. It's wonderful to connect on Wisconsin soil. Absolutely. Thank you for being part of The Morning Show today. So you have done extensive work uh, in, in the field of history, and I'm sure know history well. Uh, I wonder, though, how much you knew at all about this story of the so-called ghost children uh, before you began writing this book. Um, truthfully, Greg, I knew next to nothing. Um, in, in 2014, my publisher suggested I think about World War II history and was so keen on having me do that that they actually said, you know, we think if you go to Europe, you'll find something and we'll give you a budget and, um, and, and just go acquaint yourself with, with the history. And, and I had put up all kinds of objections, including that I didn't speak German, that I hadn't been to Germany in decades. And, um, and they had confidence that I would find something, so I went in 2015, and uh, they, there had been an early suggestion from them of a, a story that was related to the Wolf Slayer, which is where that assassination plot took place in 1944, the Valkyrie plot. And so I went to the Wolf Slayer, the Wolf Schanze, in um, the deep winter of 2015, and was very much captivated by the the mood of the spot it's a very eerie place particularly in in the middle of winter and i did a lot of other fact finding a, across uh germany but i really didn't come away with a hook uh but i did gain a lot of background knowledge and truthfully what kicked this book off was the uh 28 uh 2018 policy of separating children from parents on the southern border, and that called to mind an exhibit that I had seen about the separation of children from parents following this failed plot. And as you mentioned, I tend to write about social justice, and that seemed like something that was in my wheelhouse. Hmm. 
One of the things that you tell us uh, about this move to separate children from from their parents uh, in the wake of this failed assassination plot, something called Zippenhaft or clan arrest or family punishment, that there is actually very little in the way of documentation. The way that <laughs> there, in contrast to many other uh, facets of the kind of the Nazi horror, the Nazi machine that is meticulously documented. Uh, this is not. And so you really, I think, probably had quite a challenge ahead of you in terms of trying to uncover information about this. Just how obscure a story are we talking about? Well, it was obscure in Germany until after the unification. And then as um, as the reunified Germany began to try to reconnect strands of history, stories started to emerge that had just not risen to the fore in previous decades. And so by the 90s, this was becoming somewhat known. And one reason is because eyewitnesses to the history survived. And the children who were separated from their parents um, as part of this this clan arrest or family punishment are in their 70s and 80s now. And some of them started doing interviews. And more importantly, a diary emerged that had been kept by one of them, a 12-year-old girl named Krista von Hoffaker, who had uh, started a diary to just help her process the the chaos that had enveloped her family after her father got arrested for his involvement in this plot. And um, and so that diary is actually a remarkable primary source document of the of the her experiences and it's it's one of the key records that we have of it. Many of the other records were um, seemingly destroyed in an attempt to obscure what had happened. And because this is, as you point out, a, a, one of those um, small stories that's easy to overlook in the horror of the wider Nazi um, atrocity, um, is, is one that um, was just overlooked. So it, it, didn't, it didn't rise to the top, as I said. Hmm. Fortunately, uh, through your book, we can learn much more about this really poignant and, and powerful story. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Anne Bossom about her latest book, which comes to us from the good folks at National Geographic. It is titled Ensnared in the Wolf's Lair, Inside the 1944 Plot to Kill Hitler and the Ghost Children of His Revenge. One of the things I appreciate about your book is that uh, although it doesn't take long for you to kind of get to the heart of the matter in terms of the the multiple plots to to try to uh, assassinate Adolf Hitler, you also take a little bit of time at the outset of the book to sort of set this in context. That is to, in a sense, summarize Adolf Hitler's rise to power uh, and, in a sense, the sort of national attitudes that he sort of preyed upon and exacerbated in, in order to cement himself uh, in, a, in a really uh, almost in, impregnable position of, of power. Uh, I'm just curious, as you wrote this part of the book, telling the story of Hitler and the rise of the Nazis, uh, what was most important to you to convey to us, the reader, in terms of setting the main uh, story of this book 
in proper context? I, I think uh, uh, Americans have not always done a good job of learning the history of other countries. We don't necessarily even know, understand our own history particularly well. And so I thought it was important to to make a as clear and concise a case as possible to answer the question, how in the world did this happen? How did Hitler rise to power? And um, as since my primary audience is younger readers who are coming to it for the first time, it seemed particularly important to outline just how an, um, a, a demagogue can seize seize the minds of the people and corrupt them to the point where they act beyond reason. And um, and furthermore, then once he secures his power, um, you know, completely, just how how difficult it is then to unseat him. Right. And and that then helps to explain why it took so long for this plot to to bring into action, and um, and why it was so challenging for it, and really rather astonishing that it was even attempted. Exactly. In this chapter called Hitler's Rise, uh, I think one sentence was I found especially chilling uh, in, in kind of describing the sort of the machinery of the Nazi party and the way in which uh, it, it began to kind of indoctrinate uh, so much of the German German population, you write, the pattern repeated itself throughout the country, lies and fear, lies and fear. And let's read those words and we realize that that is such a dangerous thing when those, let's call them weapons, are, are wielded effectively. Uh, absolutely. And if, if you'll indulge me, I'll read a, the... Um the quote that sets up this chapter that's from a, an eyewitness, a, literate, uh, a linguist, who, who made the observation shortly after the war, words can be like tiny doses of arsenic. They are swallowed unnoticed, appear to have no effect, and then after a little time, the toxic reaction sets in after all. Hmm. And when I constructed this chapter, I didn't realize how... Um, it would be in terms of even our own national history, where in recent months lies have um, have become truths for many people in in a way that's um, equally chilling. Mm. In the second chapter called "Resisting the Regime," uh, you, in a sense, open with a photograph that I have never seen. In fact, I've never seen a photograph anything like it before. And it is some kind of demonstration uh, that is against the Nazis. It's in 1932. And we see a banner at the center of which is a swastika with three lines drawn through it. Evidently a symbol used by those who in the early going uh, demonstrated against the Nazis. I found all kinds of things surprising, but I suppose chiefly among them, I just don't ever remember hearing anything about people resisting the Nazis that early. Uh, I mean, really before the full horror of the Nazi party was was widely recognized. And uh, I found that really uh, intriguing. And I suppose that's also a really important stepping stone as you proceed to the rest of your story. 
Yeah, and you make a good point because this honestly was um, a revelation to me too, and um, and I think uh, perhaps we've done a, a a poor job sharing that fact with our own um, telling of history because it, it, originally we were constructing a history that just sort of was black and white. We were the good guys. They were the bad guys. Um, Hitler was in charge. Um, you know, Americans went over and, and helped to save the day. Um, and it, it's so much more nuanced than that. There were multiple groups, and Hitler had mechanisms that um, quietly snuffed them out um, or quickly snuffed them out, and, and more would rise um, and and perhaps act more subtly, more, um, you know, under the, the radar, so to speak, and, um, and not even knowing necessarily that other groups were doing the same thing. But there was an ongoing um, simmering resistance throughout the regime, or at least um, through this period um, that culminates with this attack in July 20, 1944. You tell us that as early as 1941, uh, there were people already hatching plots to try and assassinate Hitler, or in one way or another, uh, to bring him down. I mean, so serious were the misgivings even that early uh, in, in, in the Second World War. And one of the things you say that I think is, is very helpful context, uh, uh, you, you write the complexity of the challenge they faced, that is those trying to end this, uh, the challenge they faced helps account for the lag between resolve and action. So many questions needed to be considered and answered. Should Hitler be killed or should he be arrested? I mean, I'd never stop to think about that as well, that that for those uh, engaged uh, in the increasingly dangerous uh, matter of of resistance and and resistance to the point of trying to take Hitler down one way or another, uh, they had to try to figure out under very trying circumstances, what is the best way to accomplish that? And uh, I, again, never stopped to really consider uh, the 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 way in which they were confronted with those kind of very difficult choices. It, yeah, it's fascinating, and um, and there's disagreement. There are people who feel like it. Well, if if we assassinate him, then we're no better than um, than the regime, and others who felt like that's the only way we're going to be able to um, to just do in this this force of evil. That um, that nothing that an arrest would not be sufficient. That you needed something more conclusive. And is it as simple a matter as the fact that Germany was losing this war? That even relatively early on, uh, there were those in the know who were realizing that this was a doomed venture, and. Uh, and that they were all likely to be consumed uh, by it unless Hitler could somehow be stopped. I mean, is that the kind of the heart and soul of why there was uh, this, this, this effort to bring Hitler down? Well, that was certainly a, a key factor. And many of the people involved in this, um, this simmering plot 
were were members of the military. Some were career officers. Uh, others had been um, placed in those positions when everybody was mobilized to to support the war effort. They had been executives before, and then taken became um, military leaders. But they felt the same responsibility for the men under their command that officers would feel today for their soldiers. And and Hitler turned out to be a pretty lousy military strategist, and he was getting a lot of soldiers killed. And these were their soldiers, and that was was, um, just offensive and, from a, a pure military standpoint, bad business for a a military to be wasting its troops. So there was outrage on that level. There was um, outrage because of the atrocities that were taking place uh, by Nazi, um, these private Nazi militias that would come along behind the troops and and were murdering um, undesirables and and, leaders and so forth in conquered territories. This was the the opening shades of what would become the Holocaust. There was the um, outrage as as these leaders began to hear rumors of the Holocaust itself. And um, and so all of that was, was driving their determination that something needed to be done. But on the other hand, all of them had had sworn a military oath of allegiance to Hitler himself. And these were people who took oaths seriously. They were used to following directions. So there was this moral conundrum of, you know, do we betray our oath because we have this higher loyalty to our country? Will that be recognized? It, they had a, it, it took a long time to puzzle that out, too. Mm. We're speaking with Ann Bossom about her book, Ensnared in the Wolf's Lair, inside the 1944 plot to kill Hitler and the ghost children of his revenge. So... Uh, although there are various plans made and, in a sense, unmade and new plans revised about trying to uh, assassinate Adolf Hitler and achieve what would amount to a coup, uh, and, and there, are, there, are, there are more than, uh, more than one actual attempt made, uh, the, the, the central attempt is in this plot that I think was codenamed Valkyrie, and uh, you devote an entire chapter to that, which includes not only plans for the assassination of Hitler, but then for other things to happen in other places all around Germany to, in a sense, effect the removal of, of the top echelon of Nazis from power. I'd never stopped to think about that either. That uh, I mean, I'd heard about this assassination plot, but I guess I'd simplistically thought that you take Hitler down and the whole thing collapses. And, and this... This plot in 1944 was about much more than just assassinating Hitler. Exactly, because you had um, you had Gestapo agents, you had Nazi officials, you had SA troops um, scattered all over Europe, who were essentially um, a, a private security force and military force under Hitler's command. There were um, he had people who were close to him, who would have stepped in to take his place if he had been assassinated. 
So a good deal of thought went into, you know, how do you kill as many of those top people as possible, not just Hitler? And some of the attempts were set aside because it didn't seem like enough people were going to be killed in these bombings that were principally targeting him. But then also trying to recruit people at, you know, in Paris, in Prague, in Vienna, who could um, have troops loyal to them, who would follow them against, you know, not just these officers breaking their oaths, but would have the military forces required to round up hundreds of Gestapo agents, SA forces, et cetera, at gunpoint and, um, and be prepared to execute them, you know, have, um, have instant trials and execute them as, as traitors to Germany. Mm. Well, you outline this plot in... In, uh, in detail in this chapter, and of course it is a plot that ultimately fails. And uh, we'll leave it to our listeners to uh, explore this uh, on their own. Uh, what your book then primarily takes up from that point on is what occurs in the wake of this, let's call it a failed coup attempt, which ends up being a far more extensive uh, plot than had initially been realized by the Nazis. At one point, you write, as as they began to kind of uncover more and more details about who was involved, Nazi officials were astonished as they started to tug at the tangled knot of betrayals. It, and and it's really interesting to think about what those Nazi officials thought as they begin to realize just how many people. Uh, were involved in this coup attempt. How many of, in a sense, their brethren? Uh, right, exactly. Were, were, people, were, <laughs> people who were there, um, who had were national heroes, like like um, General Ir- Irvin Rommel, who was um, you know the poster child for the military excellence, who was in on the pro- plot too, and um, and was forced to commit suicide. Or else be betrayed as uh, and have his family punished, um, and his death was um, was was presented whitewashed as being uh, the result of some wounds that he had recently received. But uh, the thought that Rommel would turn against Hitler must have unsettled him greatly and the others because it just showed how how deep the the betrayal was within. Um, uh, the teams that had seemed loyal, right, and then they had to think on some level. I should, I should think, uh, what, what do they know that we don't know, or uh, what, wh- why? Wh- there must be something uh, for for all of these people to be turning against Hitler. Uh, it's 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 a fascinating facet of of this story. Well, in the wake of this, of course, uh, those who are discovered to have been part of this are brought to uh, quick and inhumane justice. But then beyond that, then Hitler decides to impose this practice of Zippenhaft, or clan arrest, in which not only people directly involved in this coup attempt uh, are arrested, but uh, in effect members of their family as well, including even children. First of all, is this essentially unprecedented, or had we seen anything like this before from the Nazis? 
Uh, no, the policy of Sippenhoff existed throughout the um, the Nazi regime. This was one of Hitler's tools of terror, and the way um, uh, it, he kept the the population in check um, because everyone knew that. Y- y- there were spies everywhere. Your neighbors could be spying on you. The Gestapo agents were certainly aware of what you were doing. People were listening in onto telephone calls. And if you got in trouble, it wasn't just you that would get punished. Your family might too. And the, the conspirators knew that their family might get swept up in this. Um, they did their, their best, many of them, to, to keep the families completely unaware of anything so that they had um, – complete deniability of knowledge of of what had happened um but um so it was not um a new practice but it was um unusual in that many of these these people were many of the conspirators were from the former aristocracy of germany these were people who still had titles like count and baron um, in their names. And so when the Gestapo showed up to arrest people, they were arresting countesses and, um, and baronesses and putting them in prison. And so that was a, a shocking thing, even though in theory the aristocracy had had been ended. Nonetheless, these were household names like Rommel is to us and um and so that made it a slight somewhat more delicate operation and yet they they persisted and they did round up um hundreds of relatives and um and and dozens of children children as young as 10 years old hmm. one of the things i found especially chilling in the way that this was carried out was that if if i understand correctly uh, in many cases gestapo agents would show up on the doorstep and uh, and a mother might be taken away for questioning or detention or what whatever and while she was gone and the children are left in the care of the nurse or the neighbor or whatever more agents would come and take the children away so in some cases, you would have a mother returning home eventually only to find that her children had been taken away without her knowledge. Uh, exactly. And, and, and one thing we read over and over again in your book are the two words, no explanation. No explanation. I mean, mm-hmm. agents showing up at someone's doorstep to take them away with no explanation. And it seems to me that that is probably at the heart of what this was all about, and it just makes a, a terrible situation, in a sense, even more unbearable. Yeah, I think one of the things I learned um, exploring this history and and talking to um, these these you know now octogenarian survivors of it is um, just how uh, terror can take many forms. Uh, you know, we can certainly. Uh, appreciate how terrifying the um, experiences during the Holocaust were. That's that's a, a form of terror that's immediately um, just horrifying to contemplate putting ourselves in those situations and, and knowing other people experience that. But there is this um, more insidious kind, <clears throat> excuse me, insidious kind of terror that just simmers below the surface. And 
um, and you know, not knowing the answer. Like you say, no explanation. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know why I'm being taken there. I've got, you know, I'm 12 years old. This is the, the diarist, Krista. I'm 12 years old. I've got my my six-year-old and I think he was an eight-year-old brother with me. Um, I'm trying to keep them from freaking out. I've got these Gestapo agents who are very intimidating. I'm riding on the train for days. I don't know where we're going. When we finally get off the train, we walk for, um, for I don't know, they, I think it was a two-mile walk they had to take. And imagine a six-year-old gone a two-year-old, uh, on a two-mile walk going to a place they don't even know where they're going. And um, and then they get there, and the the one comfort they've had is the three children are together, and the brother's actually nine, not um, eight. But um, the the three children are separated, so they don't even have that comfort. And they're told their last names have been changed, um, so they don't have the the their identity is is being um, undermined. Just at every level, this regime knew how to to take away your sense of security and and create this just um pulse of of terror that would 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 beat right alongside your heart. Mm. You describe in some detail what life was like for these children uh who were uh detained at uh Bad Saxel and uh you also tell us how they came to uh, have the nickname of Geisterkinder or ghost children. And it sounds like it had something to do with their rather strange silence. Explain who observed these children and, and, uh, and what was behind this intriguing nickname of the strange ghost children. Um, so there were in some ways the children had a relatively peaceful existence at this this um facility where they were held outside Bad Saxa uh and um you know they weren't physically harmed they were fed three times a day they slept in beds um but um when they walked out of doors they were forbidden from talking to one another so the children had developed a their own sort of sign language for how to communicate when, when they were permitted to go outside. And uh, they were on this complex that had multiple um, large residences. Um, re- resi- it was like a residential complex. And uh, as, as the numbers of children diminished because some were allowed to go home, uh, they, they were centralized into one of the buildings on this complex and with others vacant. Those were at one point filled by uh, some scientists and military officers who were working nearby. And those, um, those grown-ups observed these children kind of gliding along the, the grass and it, you know, in silence, um, and it, it reminded them of, of of ghosts. So they came up with this nickname for them as the Geisterkinder, as you said, the ghost children. And uh, the children never knew that that nickname had been given to them because these groups did not mix. And I um, I don't think I tell the story in the book, but years later. Uh, Krista, who who emigrated to the United States after the war, uh, li- lives on the West Coast, was at a, a dinner party with other expats, and it turned out that one of the dinner guests 
was one of those adults who had seen these kids. And he said, oh, my God, Krista, you were one of the ghost children. Huh. And, uh, and that was how they, that term came to light. And it, it's, um, it's just such a chilling description, and it captures them not just in their silence, but just the way they, were, they, were, they had their childhoods haunted, really, by these experiences. Wow. You tell us, of course, not only about uh, how they are treated, what they experience, but of course, ultimately, the way in which they are they are able to escape. And in fact, there is uh, a lot of, 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 in a sense, strange coincidences or strokes of strange luck that uh, that allow them to survive, including one really strange instance in which an allied bombing there, this is at the very end of the war, actually prevents them from being brought to what was their intended destination. Can you just say a quick word about that? Uh, Yes, you're right. There were these twists and turns. There was an attempt made in early April of 1945 to consolidate um, all of the remaining family members that were still being held in this um, the revenge. And the children were very benignly told, you're going to be reunited with your families tomorrow and pack your bags. And they did. They got on a transport vehicle. And um, as you said, this Allied bombing began, and they were unable to reach their train station. And had they done so, they would have been taken to, it's true, um, to meet up with their relatives, but their relatives were being held at Buchenwald. So they would not have been going home. They would have been going to a prison camp. And, um, and so that bombing spared them that trauma, at least. They came back to, to their original facility, and um, within days, Allied forces reached that compound and had liberated it. Hmm. The final portion of your book talks about, in a sense, what it was like for these children to survive this and try to resume their lives, but under the shadow of a trauma that uh, gripped many of them very, very tightly, perhaps to some extent for the rest of their lives. Just say a word about what you were able to learn about uh, the struggles and pain that has been part of the the later lives of at least many of these so-called ghost children. Right. And I I think it's worth keeping in mind that not only did they experience this this trauma of separation and, and uncertainty, but they returned home to a country that had been defeated, to families that had in almost all cases lost their heads of household, Um, And so their economic circumstances had changed. um, The regime had spent the better part of a year branding their their families as traitors. And so when they returned to school, they were pariahs um, and and called traitors themselves. And so they had um, a challenging reentry into society. And and also we're learning about these greater tragedies that had happened, um, even more horrific um, experiences. And so there, there, there had been no time for, you know, there were no therapists who showed up to help these people. They had to find the, the wood that was going to keep their fire going and, um, and just 
get through each day. So the trauma was pushed aside, but as we all know, that doesn't mean it goes away. Uh, Some of them were able to process it better. I spoke with one um, man who was seven at the time, uh, became a professor later on, and only later in life when he began to compile his own memories and collect those of others was he able to finally begin to talk about and process what had happened to him. And I think that was a pretty typical experience that um, it took time. It it took the ability to, to share the stories with others, to to come to appreciate that actually I did suffer and I, I, it's okay to own that and, um, and try to grow from that. Mm. And I think the diary that Krista helped, and, and she was one of the people I interviewed as well, that I think that diary helped her with that processing. Mm. Well, uh, we certainly uh, appreciate uh, the way in which you have told this story so uh, very, very effectively. And, uh, and I really appreciate also the fact that although this book, uh, as I think you've already said, is at least to some extent intended for young readers, I found it utterly engrossing and fascinating start to finish. So uh, I don't think we should limit this to uh, younger readers. This is a book that, uh, that all of us should read uh, who are interested in knowing more about uh, the wide trauma that so much of the world has experienced in, in the Second World War. The book, again, is Ensnared in the Wolf's Lair, Inside the 1944 Plot to Kill Hitler and the Ghost Children of His Revenge, published by National Geographic and the author Anne Bossom. Anne Bossom, thank you so much for being part of the morning show today and for sharing with the world this important book. I appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.